Hi folks, and welcome to the second of the JFS History Sixth Form Podcasts. Um, today I'm going to be continuing with my discussion of the Kaiserreich, and we're going to focus on the question of how the Kaiserreich managed to remain in power, and we're going to be looking at the kind of a couple of different approaches that the Kaiserreich government took to as the question that you may have done at the end of year 12 said, maintain the status quo to allow, despite the fact that there was a rising socialist movement in Germany, to allow the Kaiserreich, this undemocratic system of government as we established in the last podcast, to allow it to remain in power. I suppose I should begin by addressing the issue of why this is a question at all. Um, what what do we mean by maintaining the status quo what do we why is why are we even concerned about the idea that the kaiserreich might not continue to exist indefinitely um and i suppose there's two answers to that the first is that the kaiserreich didn't last indefinitely did it it it, it collapsed in the wake of world war 1 which shows that there must have been some kind of inherent underlying problems that caused its collapse um, beyond just the war as well. The other issue as well is that the people involved in the Kaiserreich, the elites, the uh, very founders of it, were concerned about the idea that it might be overthrown, were concerned by a perceived threat of socialism. Let's take a look at the quote from the Kaiser himself that we can see on page 21 of the green Edexcel textbook. He's speaking to the um, new recruits to the German army, and he says, Recruits, you have sworn me allegiance. That, children of my guard, means that you are now my soldiers. You have given yourselves over to me, body and soul. There is only one enemy for you, and that is my enemy. With the present socialist agitation, it may be that I shall order you to shoot down your own families, your brothers, yes, your parents, which may God forbid, but then too, you must follow my orders without murmur. So, we're talking about a dude who is seriously concerned that he may have to have his soldiers shoot people in his own country. Um, there was anxiety about socialism in the late 19th century. So, I think it's perfectly reasonable for us to devote some time to a discussion of what it was that the Kaiserreich, uh, its continuing governments, did to stave off that threat. The first thing to make reference to is the welfare state in Germany. Um, I, remember, I remember being told when I was doing my A-levels that the Germany of 1870 had one of the most developed welfare states of any country in Europe in that time. And you can see across the 1800s and into the 1900s that this is something that German chancellors add to periodically, developing a, um, a, a sort of an, an expansion of the welfare state um, which would benefit the welfare of ordinary Germans, even though they had no democratic rights. It did sort of afford them some palpable material benefit. We can see this foremost in the period under discussion in the new course of Caprivi. Caprivi was um, William II's Chancellor in the years 1890 to 94, and he 
had an idea of embarking upon a new course uh, which saw the Kaiserite government as being less kind of antipathetic towards the working classes and instead of trying to sort of offer them a degree of um, support and kind of, um, what's the word, uh, yeah, these material benefits, I suppose, that uh, it would encourage them to support and favour the regime. There was an end to Sunday work, there was a restrictions on child labour, there were restrictions on the working hours for women, uh, there were industrial courts to sort of mediate in disputes between workers and employers. These aren't, by our own standards, um, particularly big changes. Oh, he also proposed tariff reforms. Now, tariffs are taxes paid on um, imports and, or paid on imports and exports, but paid on, you know, on people, the people who are trying to import goods into your country are forced to pay. Now, these, then they represent a kind of protectionist economic policy. Now, they are bad for poor people. Poor people benefit if they can buy the cheapest goods available to them on the market. If you can buy Russian bread, made or bread made from Russian grain, and that grain is cheaper than German grain, it is better for you. But, of course, tariffs are good for rich, aristocratic, Juncker um, bread producers, grain producers. So it was an action that kind of favoured the working class, favoured um, also favoured the kind of rising industrial classes actually and sort of knocked back the conservative entrenched Juncker aristocratic elite um, and eventually they, they do fame as chancellor. It's kind of one of the things that contributes to uh, Caprivi falling from power. But these things taken together you can see are an attempt to offer the working class some sort of benefit that would make them look, as I've said, favourably upon the Kaiserite. But Caprivi was not the only um, chancellor with social reform on his mind. We see Bullau in the 1905, is it? 1900. Bullau by 1900 um, extends accident insurance to the working classes. He makes industrial courts um, compulsory. He extends the prohibition on child labour. And these factors taken together show us that um, the German state was working towards providing its citizens with some sort of comprehensive welfare system, um, you know, for the benefit of ordinary people. So, in theory, part of the reason that um, the Kaiserreich managed to sort of maintain itself was through concessions to the workers, if not in terms of political power, at least in terms of material benefit. This does not, however, in itself um, explain the success of the regime. And to understand that fully, we must turn our eyes to uh, the policy of Weltpolitik und to Flottenpolitik, um, literally world politics and floating politics. These phrases refer to the idea that Germany needed to find its place in the sun. Chancellor um, Bullau and Hohenhoe are the ones primarily responsible for this. And they argue that what Germany needs to do 
is develop a much more aggressive foreign policy that they need to emulate Britain and France in developing imperial uh, pretensions, in developing a kind of colonial system where Germany rules over other countries and also where they get into kind of competition. This is where the float and politic thing comes in with Britain um, for sort of naval dominance. Now, the idea behind this is not purely to try and whip up the working classes into fits of jingoism. They they seem to have kind of believed that this was the right thing to be doing for Germany from their own points of view, that, that Germany should be this big kind of imperial power. But from our point of view with regards to the question of how they remain sort of supported by the working classes for the length of time that they do, then it has a role to play in kind of inspiring the German people to develop a pride in their German identity. It inspires these kind of nationalistic feelings, you know. One might look back, well, it's, it's a truism, isn't it, that kind of war and the idea of the country you come from as being a a democratic power, a big, not a democratic power, being a big kind of imperial power, um, is something that you can have, you can have pride in. Um, and there's a very, very interesting test of this that occurs in an event known as the Hot and Tot election. Um, essentially, Germany takes over a bit of Africa. And when they take over this bit of Africa, the African people who were living there previously don't, don't like it very much, and they are cross. And when they express the fact that they are cross at the Germans having taken over the place where they live by fighting with the Germans, the Germans start murdering them all and kind of massacring them in an event known as the Herero Massacre. And the Socialist Party in Germany says, and, the, and also the Catholic Party say that it's a bad idea to murder people and, and kill black people on the grounds that they are black, which is kind of what is going on, I suppose. Like, you go to a country and you take all their stuff and then they get upset and then you kill them and say, well, you shouldn't have had it anyway, give it to us. I suppose that's kind of what's going on. And an, an election is heard, is called, when the Socialists and the Catholic Party start to protest about this. And it's a really interesting election because the German people are asked to make a choice. Do you support the Socialist Party, who you've been voting for in increasing numbers throughout the time that the Socialist Party has been legal in Germany? should have pointed out, socialism used to be illegal under, under Bismarck, and it collapses in, like... 1885, the law, the anti-socialist law, I think. It's not massively important, or you can check it, but, you know, the the um, the, the socialist, anti-socialist laws disappear. And ever since they, they've gone, the socialists have got more and more and more votes. People have been supporting them in ever greater numbers. And then they have this election in 1905, 06, I beg your pardon, um, where people are effectively asked to vote on whether they support German colonial policy. Like it's not like the election isn't 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 like explicitly couched in these terms, but a lot of the campaigning is done with this kind of rhetoric in place. Do you support German colonialism? The idea that Germany has a right to build a great big empire, and when people in that empire rebel against them, it's Germany's right to kill them. Or do you support socialists who say that's wrong? And for the only time in the period 1890 to 1914, the socialist vote goes down. 
And it seems that the German people genuinely believe that the colonial concerns of the right-wing parties and the kind of interest in making Germany a strong and powerful nation able to crush punny tribesmen is more important to them than their kind of welfare-based socialism, uh, socialistic principles, which, which has governed their, 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 their voting habits heretofore. And it's really, really interesting. Oh, it's interesting full stop that like nationalism has often been used as a tool to distract the working classes away from um, their concerns with their, their material benefit or indeed like a, a people in a country away from their, from their own particular concerns. One could look at the example of the Falkland Islands in, in our own country and that you covered in the AS course. You know, Thatcher was immensely unpopular but then when it came, she became perceived as a, as a war leader, all of a sudden her popularity absolutely skyrocketed. I wouldn't even begin to suggest that she did it on purpose. Heaven forbid. But um, it is certainly a possibility that the that this kind of Weltpolitik and Flotenpolitik sort of served to galvanize the German people behind the Kaiser as an ideal, because he was the figurehead of the army, because he was the commander of the navy, and Germany spending all this money building bigger and bigger boats, and kind of, or more and more boats, not just bigger and bigger boats, but more and more boats, you know, that's a massive boat. I mean, an even more massive boat. It wasn't like that. More boats, building more boats. Um, in competition with Britain, and to one degree or another, the ordinary German people seem to have felt like this was an important idea, I guess. Now, wh what's really interesting about it is that after the Herero um, uprising and the subsequent Hottentot election, the Socialist Party has to be very, very cautious um, about being perceived as being unpatriotic. And because the Kaiser's identity is, is tied into kind of imperial Germany's identity, this kind of the new German Empire identity, they have to be very, very careful that criticising the emperor doesn't seem like criticising Britain. I mean, obviously, it's possible to criticise a monarch and not be unpatriotic, it's possible to criticise a monarch and be patriotic. Yeah, getting rid of that double negative there. You can criticise a king, or queen even, and still like your country, but it certainly seems to have curtailed the willingness of the the SPD, the German socialists in the Reichstag, from, seems to have curtailed their willingness to criticise the Kaiser. So an important lesson has been learned for them. If you make the German people choose between nationalism and socialism, they may very well choose nationalism. And that kind of cows the socialists for a bit and makes them um, feel obliged to support a lot of the policies with regards to budgeting of the army and the navy that they may have chosen not to support um, if they felt like this wouldn't anger their kind of core voters. And it seems like their core voters did like the building up of, of imperial power. The third issue to consider is is that people didn't really have a mechanism, or the socialists didn't really have a mechanism whereby they could criticise the Kaiser or challenge his authority in any realistic way. As we have seen the, in our discussion of how democratic uh, the Kaiserreich was, the powers of the Reichstag to critique him were, were fairly limited. So 
short of, of revolution, the SPD could only use this fairly impotent institution as a means to critique him. Um, and it was fairly impotent. He didn't really feel obliged to listen to them in any way. You could look at the example of, or we could consider like, the question of how chancellors remain in power. And you could look at the Daily Telegraph affair, where the um, the Reichstag, the SPD, sort of heavily populated Reichstag, supported the Chancellor against in and encouraged him to kind of criticise the Kaiser when he made some unsanctioned comments about how Britain and Germany should be, be better friends in an interview with the Daily Telegraph. He was just kind of sounding off as far as I can make out. I think Britain and Germany should be friends without ever really consulting anybody. And it gets published in a national newspaper in Britain and the Reichstag are, what have you done? And, and they persuade um, the Chancellor at the time, Bullau, to kind of ask him not to do it again and um the kaiser can no you mean to tell me what to do and sort of he withdraws support from bullau and then the next time bullau comes under criticism from the reichstag for something the kaiser won't support him and he gives him the sack and you can kind of contrast this with the Zabern affair, which is where basically the army beats up a load of innocent people in this town of Zabern, and the Reichstag are completely outraged, and they kind of complain to the Kaiser about it, and or complain to the Chancellor about it, and the Chancellor ignores them. Uh, the Chancellor at the time, by the way, is Bethman. Um, and he kind of backs the Kaiser in the army and says, well, no, we're not going to do anything about it. And um, despite, you know, his fierce criticism from the Reichstag, Bethmann stays in power. So uh, there just isn't a kind of mechanism, especially when they're concerned about seeming unpatriotic, but there isn't really a mechanism short of kind of bloody revolution for them to critique what, the Kaiser does, or, or for them to kind of offer any sort of salient challenge to the Kaiserreich. Having said this, I'd like to round off by reminding you that it doesn't necessarily go the way of the entrenched elites that run Germany at this time, or without pause. The SPD gets more and more popular every year. They are the single largest party in the Reichstag by 1914 and they have, you know, a, a significant power base. And as we discussed in the um, in the other podcast, in the first podcast, they could have had even more votes if the constituent boundaries had been moved. So clearly the status quo, the kind of this unerring support for the Kaiserreich is not total because people are more and more inclined to ally themselves with socialism so as a kind of however were we writing an essay about that it would be worth kind of making a counterpoint that there is this growing support for the SPD a growing industrial class with increasingly socialist um, instincts but we should then ameliorate that comment by noting that the P despite the fact that the SPD in Germany has a very kind of revolutionary rhetoric in the way it, it, it kind of expresses itself, this doesn't necessarily mean that the German people at large 
are entirely in line with that. We could make an argument, and indeed I've got a book somebody could borrow if they wanted to, by a guy called Edgar Fuchtwanger. Funny name. Um, Edgar Fuchtwanger, who argues that really the, um, the support for the SPD was largely inspired by a belief of the German people that the SPD would get them better working and living conditions than any other party. They aren't like revolutionary Marxists as a population. They just see uh, the Socialist Party as being the one that's best for them. Trade union membership is very, very high in Germany. It has one of the largest trade union um, movements in Europe, in the world possibly. But at the same time, this doesn't necessarily argue that there are a group of people who are looking to overthrow the German state. Now, this is what I'd like to round off with, actually. Why does the German state fall? And to understand that, I think we need to go back to, um, to thinking about Weltpolitik. Imperialism and jingoism and nationalism is what kind of solidifies the German people's support for the Kaiserreich in a fairly major way. But imperialism and jingoism and nationalism is what brings Germany into a military conflict with France and Britain in the First World War. So I think that it's rather neat, you know, you could write this in an essay if you like, I think it's rather neat to argue that at one time Germany, or the German status quo, the power of the Kaiserreich, is sustained by Weltpolitik. But ultimately, by 1918, it is destroyed by it because it is the suffering and the misery and the harsh living conditions brought about by the effects of the 1914-18 war that causes the German people to grow so discontent with the Kaiser's rule that he is forced to abdicate. So I quite enjoy arguing that the Kaiserreich is a regime sustained at one time but ultimately destroyed in the end by its dependence upon a policy of Weltpolitik. I think that's all I'm going to talk about today. I think that's enough on the Kaiserreich. I may do one more kind of tidying up podcast on it but I may just go on to looking at the war actually and kind of covering the effects of the war, which should be slightly briefer and slightly straightforward. Um, I should round off by saying that these podcasts, or certainly my ones, maybe other people will do ones that are more comprehensive, don't aim to give you all the facts about everything all at once. They're potted little revision experiences. Like even in that, in the one I just to live in that, the one you're listening to. I completely forgot to mention that Bethman also um, introduces a kind of a, a more of the these kind of moderate welfare reforms. He introduces uh, an improvement in, in pensions and things like that. In fact, no, Bullau introduces old age pensions or develops old age pensions and then Bethman kind of adds and codifies to it. The nature of me kind of extemporizing in this way, I don't know if you can tell this, but I'm not working with a script, um, means that I'm not always going to remember everything that one could mention in an essay at any one given time. They're meant to be kind of light and fluttery overviews of, of, of the experience and dealing more with the, the arguments and key concepts than anything else. Um, I hope that's okay. I hope you can listen to these and go back to the textbooks and then kind of finalize and and sort of 
granularise your your knowledge. And I hope they're fun, and I look forward to speaking to you soon. Bye-bye, guys. <laughs>